politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman to the one and only CR podcast. This is a brand new week here at Blaze Media. Daniel Horowitz, your host, back in the house Monday, December 6th. And what a day to fight for liberty with only a few weeks left to this year. Today is the anniversary of the ratification of the 13th Amendment. For those of you who went to a government-run school, that is the amendment that abolished slavery. But then again, it's been unabolished the last year because now we are slaves to the state. The bottom line is, as a friend of mine who listens to the show told me her daughter works for a funeral home in Alaska and they are swamped with dead bodies between the deaths from the shots and the deaths from the virus, which are now worse than they were before the shots, they are overwhelmed. And that basically paints the picture of what we're seeing everywhere in the country and really much of the world, Europe certainly, that's what we're confronted with. They created a virus. They found a mechanism to make it as strong as possible and mutate in a strong way, even though it normally mutates down. Kill us from the virus. Kill us from the shot. You can't get beyond this issue. So this Omicron garbage I have a very unsettled feeling. I'm not saying, I don't want to scare you, but I just, when I can't figure out where the enemy is headed and what their game is, you know, because it looked like even with this devastation, they can only have one round of this super Pfizer souped up version of Delta, and then you have herd immunity. Well, what if there's a way that they can undo natural immunity and start the cycle all over again? Remember, they, they do not want this to end because they created it to begin with. They're enjoying it too much. Now, it appears to be mild, appears to be good news, but it also appears to be that they created this. Okay? So something doesn't make sense here. And we're going to have Dr. Ryan Cole on. Our, he's kind of like the Pope of the Patriot Doctors. We're going to have him on to give us a sense of what is going on epidemiologically, what is going on with excess deaths, what's going on with all this stuff. So so he's going to answer some of the vexing questions we have. But I do want to get into a couple of stories before we bring him on, uh, just because once I bring Ryan on, it's just like, you know, he has so much good stuff to say. Um, our first sponsor today, a new partner we have, enemieswithinthechurch.com. That is the name of a new documentary film produced by Trevor Loudon. It's a film that gives you the full background on how the evangelical establishment has become compromised. It started with the other religions. It started with every other facet of the economy, of business. And now they took over the last bastion of you know pro-Americanism. And they've really injected social justice, critical race theory, neo-Marxism, refugee resettlement, criminal justice deform, all this garbage into uh, much of the evangelical establishment. In order to turn around America, you're going to have to win back the church. And in order to win back the church, it's got to start with evangelical churches. So again, the the film will expose the bad ideas, but also the bad actors and the bad money funding this. Very, very interesting. Go to enemieswithinthechurch.com um, to buy the DVD or purchase the PPV streaming and send it to your pastor. Send it to those involved in your church. You got to wake up. 
because the church has got to be at the forefront, much less cannot be compromised. So there's a lot of news today. Um, You have Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the EU Commission on COVID, basically saying we should get rid of the Nuremberg uh, Code. You have Jen Psaki, Biden's spokeswoman, saying that nothing is off the table in terms of what they'll do. So as we've said from day one, if you want to know what they can and will do to us, it's whatever we are willing to tolerate. And that is up until and including pure slavery. No no exaggeration here. A lot of interesting news out there today. Bad batches of remdesivir and bad batches of Pfizer. Remdesivir was found poison within poison. Gilead had to recall two lots of vials for reports of glass in them. Okay, they've already made $2.8 billion off of killing people and not saving a single life. Standard of care. The company issued a press release with a, with a uh, risk statement declaring that the administration of an injectable product that contains glass particulates may result in local irritation or swelling in response to the foreign material. If the glass particulate reaches the blood vessels, it can travel to various organs and block blood vessels in the heart, lungs, or brain, which can cause stroke and even lead to death. To date, Gilead Sciences has not received any reports of adverse events related to this recall. California-based company did not immediately respond to any request for comment from the Washington Post, but the company's spokesman, Chris Riley, told Bloomberg the recall involved 55,000 vials of the drug, enough to treat 11,000 hospitalized patients. Folks, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Now, again, remdesivir itself is poison, so now there's poison in the poison. Likewise, what probably should be the biggest news over the weekend Um, Health officials in southeastern Vietnam have suspended the use of Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine after over 120 children were hospitalized. Three died. They experienced severe symptoms from nausea, high fever, difficulties in breathing, and three died from an overreaction in a province near Hanoi and a province in the south. So we have a group of kids that have zero risk to die from the virus. 120 hospitalized. Again, is this a bad batch? We know the mechanism is dangerous and it's causing a lot of problems. But why is it that sometimes it appears like there's outbreaks of injuries and sometimes people just kind of skate by? It really makes you wonder. But that's that's why I preface this with the remdesivir story because The entire regime of quality control has broken down. It's all good. Whatever you do as part of lockdowns, masking, shots, and the particular therapeutics that they approve is all good. It doesn't matter. No regulation, no oversight, no liability. Just remember that. Let's go through a few more uh, stories here. Pfizer secrecy. The UK Guardian has an article out. Ministers have agreed... A secrecy clause in any dispute with the drug manufacturer Pfizer over Britain's COVID vaccine supply. Large portions of the government contracts with the company over the supply of 189 million vaccine doses have been redacted and any arbitration proceedings will be kept secret. I mean, folks, you can't make this stuff up. Zane Rizvi, Research Director of Public Citizen, 
The U.S. Consumer Advocacy Organization, which has examined Pfizer's global vaccine contracts, said there is a wall of secrecy surrounding these contracts, and it's unacceptable, particularly in a public health crisis. It's literally like cops breaking into a, a seedy apartment, and they bar the door and say, you can't go in there and search for the drugs. Well, you know there's drugs in there, obviously. No liability, no transparency, and all for what? For something that doesn't work. There is now an Israeli trial on boosters, a study that came out of boosters. 268 people in the study. 34 of them tested positive for COVID within 28 days. That's 12.6%. Imagine imagine you, you get a vaccine. We're calling this a vaccine. Have you ever heard of a vaccine that within four weeks, 12.6% get it, right? Meaning even if nobody gets it within four-week window, it doesn't mean it's necessarily working. It's a short window. That is greater than the general population spread, obviously. 12.6% is a tremendous amount. That is negative efficacy. And even their slight efficacy only seemed to work like we're seeing for about two to three months. So it makes you more vulnerable to COVID for the first month, which is often when people get it because it's spreading a lot and they're scared, so they go and get another one, and it's the dumbest thing you can do. And then a few months later, it's also negative. But you're trading that all for a few months of a temporary window of some degree of efficacy for some people that you don't know who it is anyway because you might not be one of those people, so you can't rely on it. Oh, and of course, it makes the virus more virulent for everyone and keeps perpetuating the pandemic. I found this amazing article um, from 2018 on leaky vaccines, quoting Andrew Reid, the Penn State author of the Merrick's disease uh, you know, thesis that was published in 2016, 2015. And it's truly an eye-opener. So we'll, we'll have to get to that tomorrow more, and hopefully later this week we'll have Dr. Dan Stock on to talk about more of this. But it doesn't work. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the story. There was a COVID outbreak on a U.S. cruise ship in the Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean. Every single person was vaccinated because they had to be. And there was an outbreak. It had to return from sea. Meanwhile, excess deaths in England and Wales, 12 to 14-year-olds, 27% more deaths. 27% more than the five-year average. 15 to 19-year-olds, 17% higher. And 20 to 24-year-olds, 13% higher. To this day, that goes unexplained. It goes unexplained. Truly unbelievable. And by the way, the Australian Public Assessment Report for BNT162B2 mRNA, or if you want to look it up, this is already a year ago. It's a 42-page document. Page 14, they note, antibodies and T-cells in monkeys declined quickly over five weeks after the second dose. So they already knew that for five weeks it was declining, just after five weeks. 
all of that for nothing? Or is it for something? Is it making it worse? And instead, Trump is out with a statement blaming Biden for vaccine hesitancy. Lovely. Thank you, Mr. President, Mr. Former President. We really needed that. Now, folks, part of how we have no rights and we're basically slaves to a cabal is because we are owned by spy mail, by a.k.a. Gmail and Yahoo. They're not private. In fact, they monitor everything you do, and they sell your data to big tech, and that's how they make money off of you. Okay, whether it's medical records, business plans, social security numbers, it is not free. So the notion that you could just get away with a free email service is nonsense. That's why I trust StartMail instead of SpyMail. They keep my email private, period. When they when you delete something, it's deleted forever. Um, it's a good thing that it's not in America, so you know they rely on their own servers, so they don't have that whole like parlor Amazon problem that a lot of people have. Um, I found it really easy to use. I've also made use a lot of their aliases. You can generate an unlimited amount of aliases from it. So if you ever need to send mails that you don't want to use your your name um and, and it also works against you know just the typical phishing schemes and spam and things like that they're governed by the strictest uh protocols for um privacy i don't trust big tech neither should you start securing your email privacy with start mail sign up today and you'll get 50 percent off go to startmail.com slash conservative that's start with a t at the end s-t-a-r-t mail.com slash conservative for 50 percent off your First year, never allow big tech to spy on you ever again. Now, as promised, we're going to have Dr. Ryan Cole on the show today. It's been way too long, and there's way too much to talk about. Now, obviously, like I mentioned, I'm feeling very unsettled about this new variant. Um, Not necessarily bad, just unsettled because nothing about what is going on is natural. Remember that. I think if you go back to, uh, I was talking to Steve Dace about this, uh, I think we've had a pretty good record in being right about most things, and to the extent we've been wrong about things, it was only because we viewed it as something natural, um, and in fact, this was a bioweapon that was created, so to the extent it behaved a little differently, it had to do with that part of it. So the question is, well, generally speaking, you see mild things, you see Things mutate down. It's called Muller's ratchet. becomes a little bit more transmissible, but in, in return, it can't kill the host uh, that quickly, so it reduces its virulence. But, you know, if this is something they manufactured, who knows? What is the evidence uh, about the scientific genesis of this? What is it? What's the clinical uh, observations we're seeing? Uh, there's no one better to talk about this than Dr. Ryan Cole himself. Dr. Cole, thanks so much for coming back on CR Podcast today. Hey, Daniel. It's always good to be with you. Well, it's hard to catch you on a non-busy day. You're all over the world, um, uh, but that's a good thing. Okay, so here's what I'm confused about. On the one hand, you know, this does appear to be, from everything we've heard, we haven't heard any deaths from this Omicron variant, um, and it would appear to be behaving the way we would expect a variant to be kind of a little bit more transmissible, but eventually turn into an endemic cold. But on the other hand, there's something doesn't smell right about this. We know that they were warning about this in South Africa several months ago. Bloomberg had an article about it. It It's like, wait, what do you know that we don't know? The Washington Times says that the variant appears to have derived directly from the original SARS-CoV virus, 
one that has not been observed in the wild in months. NPR reports that scientists can tell that this variant evolved from a strain that was circulating in mid-2020. In intervening months, there's been no trace at all of the intermediate versions. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. If they created the virus to begin with, what's to stop them from creating this? And then to throw on top of that, Delta's been ravaging people, and they never even hinted at an effort to come up with a formulation of a vaccine that speaks to that. But suddenly with this, they're like, boom, you know, the FDA announced they're going to fast track an Omicron vaccine. Like, whoa, where did this come from, Ryan? What are you seeing clinically and scientifically in this to give us some sort of hint of where this came from and where it's headed? Well, I don't have a whole lot of data here in the States because it's so rare. Uh, yes, there have been a handful identified here, so we do have to defer to the overseas data. The, the, the interesting thing is the, the virus itself is so mutated compared to the other ones that, it, that it, it's most like the original uh, strain, but with a ton of mutations. It's not like if you look at your family tree and you see, okay, you know, this child had blue eyes and, and red hair and the next child had blue eyes and a little more red blonde and each generation a little genetic change. You look at this one and you go, whoa, who, who threw the dart at this and blew it up? A bastard it's child. So, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's really, really odd if you look at the genetic trees. And now I, I really like to go to the website nextstrain.org, and you can see those family trees of each variant of the virus. And so as they vary, they acquire a few mutations and, and more virulence and or less virulence or more transmissibility, et cetera. So from a clinical point of view, you're right. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic at this point. And whether it's Mueller's ratchet or, hey, they released the Kraken, but it was just a, a wimpy little Kraken, the, the good news is it's behaving in a more benign fashion. It is more of a common cold. And yes, there are, if you look at the South Africa data, there are vaccinated individuals hospitalized. There are unvaccinated individuals hospitalized. The oxygen requirements are lower. The severity is more of a cold. Um, in fact, mo most of the people that are hospitalized aren't even on oxygen. And, and those are all great signs. So if, we want to be cautiously optimistic. We say, huh, maybe this is the one that ends the pandemic and just makes an endemic strain circulating. And then to your other point, and, and I think this is critical, critically important in terms of the shots and chasing a variant and chasing a variant. With coronaviruses, we've never made a shot. We've all, you know, we've talked about the ADE and the immune priming and the things that can happen. But the concerning aspect is by the time we get one rolled out for Omicron, we will be on to another variant, and it will always be a variant behind. Moderna did have a, a Delta shot, but they couldn't get it past the regulatory steps. And, you know, by the time it would have rolled out, here we are on Omicron anyway. So it's this common question of how long do we chase a virus in a family of viruses that evolves and play whack-a-mole with a shot or a booster palooza when something is always going to evolve ahead of us. That's the exact reason there's still no HIV vaccine. It has a spike protein too. It's a different spike, but at the same time, it always evolves. So I'm cautiously optimistic on Omicron as much as the name sounds scary and the and the scaremongering in the media is what it is. If we look at it scientifically, I think we hold out hope at this point.
but well, it does look odd when you look at the it, family tree. It I will looks put it, odd. I'll, I'll give you that. And that's what makes me very nervous. Naturally, this is what we'd expect. Um, I think, I mean, if you could speak to this, I know you have some contacts in South Africa that try to do what you do and actually treat patients. Um, isn't it true that they are seeing an uptick in reinfections of people already at natural immunity? That's true. But now you, you still have to go back to severity. And so um, it, it's similar to the Qatar study. And the Qatar study that came out last week, New England Journal, big study, 300 and something thousand patients, and less than a fraction of a percent of reinfections. And again, if you talk to Peter McCullough, he'll say how many of those were actually gene sequenced first time and gene sequenced sec- second time. Because you do have to consider how many are false positive tests the first time and maybe with another flu or cold or whatever. Sure. So really a fraction of a fraction of percent certainly can get COVID again. I would always argue, as I have all along, what's your underlying immune health? What's your underlying health altogether? What are your comorbidities? We still know that natural COVID-recovered immunity against any variant is still stronger than the shots because of the breadth and the depth of, of that immunity. So in terms of what we are seeing, yeah, a handful of reinfections, sure. Are they mild? Sure. In the Qatar study, was anybody uh, in, intensivized and or died? No. So, so again, the immune system is what's going to take care of this virus over time. And then, of course, the early treatment mechanisms of action of all the drugs that we, we've talked about and all my colleagues have talked about, again, if we would uh, humble ourselves as a medical community and say, look, we have repurposed, generic, safe, inexpensive medications that can treat this virus. And more importantly, once the virus is replicated, I look at the success. Dr. Chetty in South Africa, he's treated thousands of patients, I mean thousands, and he hasn't, in, in most of those, he hasn't used ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. He has treated most of those patients after the virus is done replicating and they're in the inflammatory clotting stage. And doctors for eons have known how to treat clotting and inflammation if they do it at the appropriate level. And we have a lot of doctors very timid and hesitant using steroids underdosing or clotting agents underdosing. So even there in South Africa, where this variant is, my colleagues that I've spoken with, they're not having trouble treating. And and again, you know, we're a couple weeks into it. We do not have an increase in hospitalization uh, per se or death per se. And we haven't forgotten how to be doctors around the world. We know how to treat inflammation and clotting like Dr. Teddy. So it's really a matter of focusing on the basics of pathophysiology in the human body. So I'm assuming we don't have enough data or even anecdotes yet on the treatments with Omicron just because it does seem like it's very mild so far. So you wouldn't be seeing some of the problems we had with Delta. But the issue with Delta, and and I think this is what's making some of us nervous, I want to get your thoughts on this because this is a little bit above my pay grade, but... With Delta, it almost appeared that it was starting with the same cycle, that, you know, it was reported in the UK, the first non-Indian country to really get a big wave, May, June. 
oh, it's just a cold. And, and that was what the media was saying. And indeed, to this day, if you go back to the data and you compare the case numbers in that wave to the deaths, it almost flatlined. It's a huge decoupling. And we thought, you know, oh, well, that's Mueller's ratchet. This is great. It's headed on the way to becoming endemic. We are good to go. No problem. And then the American South got hit, and this was much, much worse probably than even the original strain. And we're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, there is a study out I talked about last week. I wrote a column on it from French researchers where they want to say that somehow the thing was that, that Delta was more primed to ADE, to having a, va- a leaky vaccine basically enhance the pathogen um, they say as the end terminal domain is also targeted by neutralizing antibodies, our data suggests that the balance between neutralizing and facilitating antibodies in vaccinated individuals is in favor of neutralize neutralization for the original Wuhan strain. And that's why, you know, there wasn't such a concern of ADE for the original strain. However, in the case of the Delta variant, neutralizing antibodies have a decreased affinity for the spike protein, whereas facilitating antibodies display a strikingly increased affinity. Thus, ADE may be a concern for people receiving vaccines based on the original one strain spike uh, sequence, you know, now with the Delta. And it almost seems like the reality of what we've seen since then, that when the leakiness of the vaccine broke out June, July, that's when things got really bad with Delta, even though it didn't appear to start that way. The question is, is this deja vu all over again? Are we going to have, oh, this is mild, and and it probably is true, but once this circulates more widely, which I'm sure it's already more widely circulating than we thought, um, it's exposed to the suboptimal evolutionary pressure. And then out pops a more virulent version of it. It gets stronger, more aggressive, just like we saw with Delta. What's to stop it from doing that? Is there any evidence that this might be different? Yeah, it's a balance equation. So the more transmissible historically with most viruses, and again, this isn't acting as historical viruses per se, but historically, the more transmissible, the less virulent, the more virulent, the less transmissible most often. So the the question does become, okay, if it's highly transmissible, if we know so far the cold symptoms are the cold symptoms and it's less severe, again, that's an optimistic sign. Now, you're right, that French paper was very concerning in terms of, uh, I think it was around a dozen antibodies that were binding non-neutralizing at that internal domain, and, and that can lead to immune priming and enhancement. And we saw in the UK data where in certain age cohorts, if they had gotten a shot, they were actually higher in their um, propensity to acquire virus after the shots than those who hadn't gotten it. And a couple other countries as well. And then we saw more people in the ICUs, more people hospitalized, more percentage deaths in those that had gotten the shots than those who hadn't. And even more concerning, you know, the shots themselves, as we look at data from around the world, all-cause mortality is going up, be it heart attack, stroke, uh, pulmonary emboli, et cetera, from some of the immune problems from the shots. We're seeing an increase in those as well. So with this virus, we don't know yet is the honest answer. Again, I'm optimistic because it's such a different bird altogether and it's behaving differently that I look at it and go to this point, but, and your point's very valid, you know, is it going to acquire another mutation or two and, and just take off in a different direction? Um, maybe, um, 
like Delta did. It's interesting when Delta hit um, the South here in the U.S., we were at the point where everybody in the South in the heat of the summer is inside, and their vitamin D levels actually get that paradoxical effect of people not being outside when they should be. So we had more of an immune-suppressed population during the heat of the summer when Delta hit the South here. And then, you know, when it was back in more like a cold in, you know, the northern European countries, well, that's not so hot. They are outside and optimized immune health time of year generally. So it's so interesting to compare populations, general population health and behavior of any pathogen um, in different seasons in different regions. But yeah, this virus, the, the honest answer is we don't know. Um, we do know just from the mutational point of view, those who've gotten the shot are, are very susceptible to Omicron still because the electrostatic changes based on the confirmation changes, the number of changes in the binding domain, the number of changes in the spike, the number of additions and deletions, it's massive. I mean, 30-plus changes is it's significant overall. And so because of that, and to your point earlier, that's why they're saying, oh, we can, we can make an Omicron vaccine. Is there, is there evidence that, because a lot of people are asking me this, is there evidence that this is specifically more geared towards the vaccinated? Because it almost seems like the ones we're seeing in the Western countries are all vaccinated, but that just might be statistically, um, or is it just too early to know? I think it's a little too early to know. South Africa doesn't have a high um, rate of shots compared to other countries, but if you look historically at the trends, once a country hits uh, 25% vaccination, then you see an uptick of virus. So we, we essentially, over the last year and a half plus, or a year of the shots, really, um, is we've selected for the selection pressure on whatever variant can escape the shot to whatever degree doesn't end run around the virus or the vaccine. I mean, and we end up with a, a new variant or higher case rates. So that may be part of what we're seeing in, in the South Africa scenario with Omicron is, you know, they're pushed to, to uptake the, the shot uptake. And now Omicron says, well, you know, the shot was for Wuhan. We had some Delta. And this, if you look at the initial reports, again, the, the mild cases, but some of the initial reports of the virus itself and the variant itself um, was in vaccinated patients. And some of those were immune suppressed vaccinated patients. And they tend to be the breeding ground for variants because their immune system is suppressed already. The, the virus is just having a heyday of mutations and saying, hey, let's try this form, that form, this form, that form. And, and the body has very little ability to keep any of those variants in check. And then when there's one that says, hey, I think I'm a little bit better than Delta, and, and it backbenches Delta, now it becomes the dominant variant. But this goes back to that point of this family of viruses and trying to chase it with a shot instead of with adequate therapies. Um, and it also begs the question of monoclonals. You know, how effective are those going to be? Are we, are, are yes. we even going to need them if it's going to be? And, and, that, and that's the thing. It's just, you know, because my concern is if, if natural immunity, I don't want to use the word falling because if it's a cold, that's not natural immunity falling. That's just endemicity. It's not falling in terms of the pandemic. But my, my fear is that if the news gets out, oh, you know, more reinfections, but then it doesn't get out that it's that it's mild. Um, but we but we just don't know. I mean, and that's what's so concerning here. Um, and, and, and that leads me to my final question on the 
uh, epidemiological side before we get to some of the vaccine news. Um, I, I, I've been thinking about this. Uh, I, I've been reading some of Gert Vandenbosch's uh, columns at Trial Site News, and he almost seemed to be saying he talks about people with suboptimal immune responses. And not just the vaccine, but he was talking about from prior infection. And I want to make sure I'm getting this right, but I almost get the impression that that he was referring to the following phenomenon. So a lot of us read the literature. Some people were predicting that we would reach herd immunity at 20%, then maybe 40%. And I was very bought into that. And I will openly, and I've openly said that's probably the biggest thing that a lot of us were wrong about. But then the more I learned about this and I started reading what Vandenbosch was saying, I was wondering, were we actually right at the time? Um, and, and the impression I get is this, that there's, okay, you have a symptomatic infection. There's very symptomatic, very severe, very evidently symptomatic that's not severe. There's mild infection. Um, then we had all these people that were either asymptomatic, false positives, or exposed. Maybe they didn't really get it, but they were exposed. And and my understanding was that you know the reason you didn't need to reach 80% or so is because half the other people were already exposed to it. So it warded it off, but but not in the sense of that they got the infection. And it, had it stayed that way, it could be it would have ended. But once we started the mass vaccination that induced the mutation selection of the more virulent uh, types or the more durable types and then perhaps enhanced it, then that overwhelmed that degree of very suboptimal response that people maybe got from the exposure level. And then, you know, Vandenbosch seems to be concerned that you keep doing this, you keep this up, it, it might start undoing even greater amounts. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but is it, is it a fair hypothesis that perhaps it might have ended with maybe 40% seroprevalence where we were after the winter wave and the vaccines undid that? I, I like that hypothesis as well, because had we focused on early treatment, um, public health messages of health optimization, vitamin D levels, early treatments, et cetera, then we, I agree with that. We, we have put selection pressure for the variants, and you don't know what you're going to do each time. You know, we've, we've talked about Merrick's chickens before. Are you going to make it more virulent? Are you going to select for the more virulent strain? Those early Karolinska Institute studies out of Sweden that showed, hey, look, a high percentage of people can respond to the early variants because of cross-T-cell immunity and good innate memory from common cold coronaviruses. So we had that breadth of immune recognition in the population early on. And kind of to his point, your point, this concept of original antigenic sin, we push forward a shot, you focus now on uh, the strength of an antibody response instead of innate strong T-cell memory and, and your monocyte and dendritic cells that innate you know, the marines of your immune system. And we're, we're going more to kind of that sleepy, slow reactive antibody response the body goes, huh? And I think you know we focused on this spike antibody instead of saying, hey, let's optimize this good T cell memory we have from all these other common cold coronaviruses in a population. I, you know, through the retrospective scope of life, it's hard to say, but I think we could have been done earlier with this if we, as as a human race, didn't put pressure on the virus to evolve. 
and, and, and our strategy of a shot for everybody. And then actually, you know, not, not teaching people, Hey, look, if you get a shot in the middle of a fast spreading virus, you're a sitting duck for a couple of weeks while you build up an immune response. And, and so a lot of people after the shots, and we, again, we saw this in UK data, um, yep. there was a high uptick post shot of people getting Delta. And that was because again, we weren't teaching, you know, from the pulpits of public health, the basic concept of you're actually immune to press during your revving up of an immune response. So we actually got more people that acquired virus in those windows of time. And we had that happen here in the state. A lot of governors, you know, acting as doctors, hey, everybody get a shot, get a shot, get a shot. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. If you're going to do that, give the right message. Because we actually made <laughs> more people get the virus. But to your original point, and Vandenbosch's point, I agree. We knew what the early variants were. We knew to what they responded and to what they didn't. But we kept putting that evolutionary selection pressure towards the selection of a variant. Dr. Malone confirmed that in yeah. the talk he gave yesterday. And I was listening to him, and he's a brilliant biologist, and saying, look, we are putting the selection pressure. Our approach is not a scientifically coherent approach. And if we continue this, we may end up weakening our ability through that spike selection immune response instead of a broad response in our ability to say, hey, you know, we can broadly respond to any virus or any variant. We're narrowing that immune response. And even like Berenson's article where he looked at the UK data again and said, look, if you got the shot and then ended up with COVID, um, your ability to make a response against the nucleocapsid was decreased. So everything we've done to this point continues to weaken our ability. Um, and, and it just keeps begging that question of our doing something is what humanity always wants. We've got to do something, got to do something. But without that foresight of thought is what we're doing better or worse than the disease itself. And I think that's where we stand now. And, and you and I have looked at so much data and we, we can coherently say it seems that what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, because I found this to be a very fascinating hypothesis. We always looked upon it that Delta was just more transmissible and maybe Mueller's ratchet should have been less virulent. And then the ADE or some form of just, you know, viral enhancement made it that it's at least as problematic, but with greater transmission. So we got screwed by it. But I, I do wonder if there's an element of this that's also the fact that before it, before the mass vaccination, there was a certain pool that was off limits. They were exposed, perhaps, didn't really get it, but they were exposed and they were off limits. It wasn't going to affect them. But now when this came about, it reopened a whole pool, undid some of that immunity. And because you look at a place like Belgium, Belgium had a hell of a spread. For a while, they were the number one um, death per capita country in Europe and even the world after their, they had a terrible first wave. And now, at least in cases so far, they've now surpassed that first wave. And it's just mathematically, you wouldn't think there was enough people available for that. But I wonder if that's what it did. Could you describe if that is true? What would be the science behind it? What does it mean, the semantics of asymptomatic, exposed but didn't get it. And and let me give you an example, if you could kind of talk, to, speak to this. They, they say people born, I, I believe, before 1958 
are presumed to be immune to measles, even though they could swear they never got it. And, you know, it's hard to miss it because it's pretty uncomfortable. Everyone remembers when they got it. I know my parents do. And you're presumed to be immune because you are exposed. What does that mean? You have T cells, you have antibodies. What does that mean? Well, okay, so your, your T cells are the brains of your immune system, especially your natural killer cells. And if you have a strong innate immune response, and the innate, the innate system is, is T cells, monocytes, dendritic cells, and kind of that triumvirate of those constantly being exposed to everything all day long, countless pathogens all day long, they're, they're constantly surveilling. So you want to have a healthy T cell immune response. You don't even want to have to go to an adaptive antibody response. To get, to get to an antibody response, you have to get infected. The virus is broken down into particles. It's presented on the surface of cells, handshakes with other cells. Then they present those to your B cells and say, I can make an antibody to that. So that's a slow ramped up response. So to your point, those who have been you know, mildly infected or just exposed and, and their T cells are like, oh, you know, I can recognize this and remember this quickly. This is that whole concept of letting kids go to school and live in their little petri dishes. And and they're training that immune system not not only to have very specific responses to, say, you know, influenza or coronavirus or a common cold virus, but also a broad array of response in memory and training. You know, these T cells, when we're, when we're young, we have a gland called the thymus gland that, that trains our naive T cells to become fighters. And, and they, they give this pattern recognition to recognize not just specific viruses or pathogens, but families of pathogens. So it's important, you know, to, in, in, in a healthy individual being exposed to these things, you, you do, over time, build up that innate response. And this is a lot of what Van and Bosch talks about. He says, we are selecting for this adaptive memory antibody response to the detriment of the strength of a really good innate response that the younger population already has. So because grandma and grandpa, when they got the measles years ago, or didn't even know they got it, because they had a healthy young immune system then, their immune system was exposed to it. And, and you don't always get sick with the pathogen. You are exposed to it in your body it's this fertile ground hypothesis. If you have a strong immune system, the whole concept is to never get sick. Your body says, oh, I'm well, I got exposed. Okay, I can make some memory of that. I don't even need to get sick to that because I'm fine-tuned. But we as a population have become so much less healthy that we have softened our ability to do that. The more you lock people down, the more you weaken their exposure to things, the more you weaken their immune response to everything, not just COVID, but everything altogether. So we're taking an immunologic population approach that is being detrimental to our long-term ability to stay healthy and well. So my concern, yeah. Antibodies Antibodies are kind of a... you know, everybody's like, what's my antibody level? What's my antibody? I don't care what your antibody level is. I care about your ability to make a memory response, get a T cell or a B cell antibody response, and maintain that. And the number one thing for, for memory cells to form is a healthy immune system. Vitamin D plays a critical role in that. If you're deficient in that, you lose memory to many things. It's a conductor 
of a symphony, and, and it tells genes to turn on and off. You know, we've gone through the detail before, you know, you play piano, you play mezzo forte, you play this portion in harmony, but if it's missing, everything's triple forte out of key and out of rhythm. And that's the, the problem. You, you get these disjointed response if you don't have those basic health factors in place for your immune system to make memory. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what concerns me. It's not just an academic question of what could have been retrospectively, but what's going to happen forward. Because if we took all those people that maybe they tested positive, they were asymptomatic, um, maybe some of them never tested, because why would you test? Or even if you would have tested them, they would have been negative, but they're still part of that innate system just dispatches so quickly that um, they were exposed to it and weren't bound to get it again, like historically we would always say. But then when this thing came around and created more of a beast, because uh, I know tons of people, and I think a lot of our fellow uh, Patriot Doctor friends here, you know, these guys that were all over the place for months and never got it, but then when Delta came around, they all got it. Now, those that were very healthy, they all were very, very mild. I know you had a similar um, outcome as well. It was very mild, but it shows you that it knocks everything down a few levels. And my concern is, until now, the studies have shown, there's been a lot of studies that it didn't matter whether you had a mild or a serious infection. You were you had good natural immunity from prior infection. My question is, does this go, you know, if we continue on Vandenbosch's theory, and the more this gets worse, the more we vaccinate with the suboptimal, non-sterilizing leaky vaccine, will that then create a pathogen where, I don't know, I mean, even if you got it evidently and symptomatic, then you can get it again? The short answer is yes. The short answer is yes, because then we, we, if we continue to do that, we put enough selection pressure on the virus that the virus... Uh, the antigenic immune escape eventually evolved to the point that now we're all susceptible again. So the short answer is that can happen, and I think his hypothesis is correct. So by doing this and by by growing, we're growing new variants. Saying, hey, you know, we're done with Delta. Let's let's put pressure on the virus to evolve around what we're doing instead of looking at those broad approaches that can kill everything. Um, we are doing that. And, and his hypothesis, I think, will bear out if we continue to do Sure, sure. And, I, you know, and, and that's obviously the big concern that's not being talked about is just the macroepidemiological effects of a bad vaccine. Um, a leaky vaccine is not better than none. It's potentially worse. Well, and and I, I would rather, at this point, I call it a therapy, an inoculation therapy, because you saw how the CDC changed the definition of vaccine. It's non-sterilizing. Yes, it's leaky. You know, maybe it does decrease some symptoms in some cohorts. Maybe it's decreasing deaths and hospitalizations. Wonderful if it did that. However, if the cure is worse than if the disease is worse than the cure, because now you're priming those individuals for even a different variant down the road, and just giving them a narrow immune response. And what we're doing is exactly what Vandenbosch said and what you said. We're doing something that's semi-therapeutic inoculation, it's a shot. It's its not a vaccine. It's not providing broad, long-lasting, durable immunity like a COVID recovery immunity is. So we're doing something that is selecting for enhanced disease down the road and another variant and another variant that may escape everything. And that's with Omicron, I'm hoping it becomes 
I hope nobody gets COVID ever, ever again. Let me clarify that. But I'm hoping it becomes a common cold endemic and we could say, hooray, it's evolved enough. It's acting in a benign fashion to most. There are elderly comorbid people that die of common colds every year. And we don't hear about that because it's not in the zeitgeist. But the frailty of the individual depends or gives you the outcome, basically, no matter what the virus is. But to, to your point, you're right. This leaky um, therapeutic inoculation and pushing it forward in a booster pollutive fashion is going to eventually select for something that we don't want. And that's where we really need to step back as a society. We can look at the shots and say, you saw the Pfizer data that finally got forced out and 1,200 deaths reported in that first month of shots. And that's the tip of an iceberg if we look at all the data from Kirsch and Rhodes and everybody else and Crawford and, and all those guys where we look at the CMS and HHS data and the world data and we know the shots themselves are causing morbidity and mortality at much higher rates than being reported. So we're causing damaging death at a high rate. Certainly the virus has done that as well. But it, it, it's this role of the dice. Do you want to kill people with a shot or do you want to kill people with selecting It, it does both. It does both, it, right? It really is. And, so, and we're seeing the excess yeah, mortality. Yeah, like when you look at England and Wales and you see 27% yeah. more deaths in uh, fifteen to nine, uh, in uh, 12 to 14-year-olds compared to the five-year average, 17% uh, uh, more in um, you know 15 to 19-year-olds. Uh, but the problem is we don't seem to have any unifying way of quantifying this. We're hearing the hospitals are filled up, but depending on where you are, they are filled with COVID too, um, because because it's it's made it worse. So so it's almost like the perfect vaccine to screw things up in such a way that that covers its own bad deeds up. What are you seeing clinically since the last time we spoke a couple months ago? What are the most concerning safety signals? Um, you know, now that we're almost a year out into this. Okay, everybody's heard about the myocarditis in the younger individuals, and we saw the paper out of Hong Kong that just came out, one in 2,700 with myocarditis in the young cohort, in uh, 12 to 17, and that's symptomatic myocarditis. That is astronomical compared to baseline. So that's certainly one thing, giving shots to youngsters, especially since most of these kids have already had covid um, we look at the CDC data from June. At that point, 42% of American kids had had COVID. That was before Delta burned through like a wildfire. You listen to some of the um, data and the talks from Peter McCullough and some of the data gathering around the country. 60 to 80% of kids have already had COVID. Give them a shot, puts them at an increased risk of adverse reactions. Anybody who's had COVID and COVID recovered, these shots are going to increase your adverse reactions. But the, the one finding I, I think um, is interesting in the American Heart Association, of course, you know, Twitter says, well, now the American Heart Association is giving disinformation. That was the paper on the, the pulse score. And these are cardiac markers, and these cardiac markers indicate your risk for cardiac events in the next five years. And to see something more than double and maintain an elevation over a two-and-a-half-month period of time post-shot these, these are the markers of inflammation that are staying high. Now, why is that? We know that the spike can persist post-shot in circulation. The Harvard study is Ogata and colleagues up to 29 days. We look at the journal um, 
uh, American Journal of Immunology um, study with spike in exosomes for up to four months. We'll look at the Patterson studies of spikes circulating for 15 months. So if we're knowing that the spike is inducing inflammation, we know it can circulate for a long time. This is part of the reason for disease in some of these long-haul patients or post-vaccine long-haul as well. We, we are giving a shot that has that forms the spike. The spike is causing these inflammatory reactions that are maintaining elevation for months. And what does this mean for the heart? What does this mean for the vessels? What does this mean for autoimmune reactions? That's what's highly concerning is we're doing something without long-term data gathering. And you know, the things I've talked about before, down what regulation of certain receptors that make us more susceptible to other viruses and other infections and turn off uh, cancer regulatory pathways or autoimmune pathways. That's my long-term concern is we're seeing that still. We're seeing D-dimers in kids and youth and, and individuals. This is why other countries, you know, they're staying elevated and other countries are saying, okay, no, no more of the genetic base shots for now in anybody under 30 because they're seeing enough of it that they're saying this is not ethical, this is not moral, you know, to damage that younger cohort that is essentially at no risk for the virus anyway, it makes no sense to expose them to a higher risk than the virus itself. You know, the study of like Hogue and uh, et al. out of uh, UC Davis, where he said, look, your chance of being hospitalized as a youth is six times higher from myocarditis from the shot than it is from COVID itself. So it's upside down what we're doing in most age groups and age cohorts. And so we're still seeing that. We're seeing, seeing more of it as we roll it out even more. And for some reason, that becomes acceptable and societally acceptable or scientifically or medically acceptable. And you it's know, a illogical. few years ago, Johns Hopkins talked about a self-spreading vaccine and the creation thereof. And my question to you is, do we even have a control group left? Are you seeing evidence that the spike does shed almost like the pathogen, um, you know, through the episomes that circulate throughout your body and the same way kind of the, the pathogen would, and that non-vaccinated people are also going to suffer from these known and unknown uh, concerns and weakening of their innate immune system. It, it seems to be. I mean, it, even with the individuals that had the virus early on in Wuhan, um, sweat studies showed that the spike was present in their in their secretions in their sweat. So we know that these the small molecule can be in those secretions. We know from the studies I just mentioned that it can be circulating. There is no doubt that you know people that have been exposed to individuals who have been given a shot or boosted. You know, especially in women, the, the spike is inducing inflammation in, in those exposed. You know, mechanistically, is it still being studied? Well, some people are looking at it. The, the clinical presentation is no doubt there. And the mechanisms, hard to know. We know it can happen based on those self-spreading vaccines. You know, page 67 of Pfizer's original application said, hey, you know, if you have a shot, don't be near or in the room of a pregnant woman for, you know, four weeks. They knew. So, I mean, there's no doubt that something's happening. You know, the mechanism detecting it, such a small molecule, it's difficult. But at the same time, there's so much evidence at this point pointing towards that. Um, 
early on, people would say, well, okay, if you got the shot, don't be around for four weeks because by then maybe you're mounting an antibody response to neutralize that spike that's present. But as the uh, variants come along, the question becomes, who knows? Yeah. But yeah, I think, I, think you're, I think it's a valid question. I think the, the clinical evidence points in that direction. And, you know, some of the studies point to the fact that, yeah, that can certainly happen. Instead of getting infected with the spike or being transmitting a spike and you're getting like a, a post-spike exposure disease, I, I don't even know what to call it. Um, but as I talk to my colleagues around the world, they're seeing it. The patients are reporting it. Um, Something's, something's happening, happening, and there's n- sure. obviously not, not a good surveillance regime on it. And connected to that, I find this very concerning, and I want to know if you've seen this and have anything to say about it. Dr. Martin Neal of Queen Mary University in England, he tweeted out this uh, thing on Friday um, that, that, that they did a study out based on ONS England mortality data. And they found a bunch of things, but one thing particularly he found was unvaccinated mortality peaks at the same time as the vaccine rollout peaks for that age group, then falls and closes in on the vaccinated. This is unnatural, he says. Why are the unvaccinated dying after not getting the first dose? Why are the single dose dying after not getting the second dose? That sounds really creepy. And and does that mean whenever you have a massive uptake vaccination drive that everyone else is getting hosed with it? I mean, what could be the other explanation for that? Yeah, that, that's a hard one because you've got sure. sort of a lot of data points together, you know, uh, correlation, causation, and all that. But, you know, it's an interesting um, you know, interesting aspect to look at. Sure. My honest answer is I don't know. But it, those are the kind of things we need to be doing. And you know, when our own CDC stopped gathering, you know, post-vaccine deaths and hospitalizations in the U.S., how can we even get good data here? And that's why we're sadly dependent on most of the the more consolidated health systems around the world to actually get a big picture of anything that's going on. But those those are the kind of studies that do need to happen. And again, correlation causation, we're living in a, a highly stressful environment induced by, you know, draconian measures around the world. So there could be numerous causes for those. I mean, what's going on now is we have smoke alarms going off everywhere, and typically you follow up on the alarm with an investigation to make sure there's no fire, and instead what they're doing is shutting off the smoke alarms. So, I mean, yeah, we we don't know. Right. Yeah, there's a fire. Yeah, <laughs> turn it off and ignore it. Let's not even look at it. These aren't the droids you're looking for. There's nothing to see here, folks. It's like, oh, good grief. This is where science should kick in like never before. And this is where, you know, Fauci and the agency should say, all right, let's do a study on this, let's do a study on that, let's do a study on this. Are you seeing safety concerns with, you know, now that we're easily nine months into the vaccination of, you know, reproductive issues? I mean, we definitely have the concern the menstrual irregularities are, I mean, you can't miss it. It's never happened in all humanity. I mean, it's it's insane. Um, The safety signals are nuts on that. It's off the charts. We know the Japanese biodistribution study in the animals that the lipid nanoparticles uh, uh, deposited very uh, prominently in the ovaries. Are are we seeing the last couple months with with births and reproductive health concerns about kids being born post post vaccine? 
Well, if you look at the fetal demise, so fetal demise is different than, you know, a lot of first trimester pregnancies never come to fruition, just, you know, mutations, defects, so you may be pregnant and then, you know, just spontaneously miscarry and whatnot. But there's a difference between a spontaneous miscarriage and fetal demise. So if you look at 2,800-plus fetal demise cases reported to the VAR system, that is more fetal demise cases post-vaccine reported than all vaccines combined over the last 30 years. That's a signal. That's a signal. And then I don't know if you saw the case where there were 13 stillbirths in a Canadian hospital within a 24-hour period of time. Um, That was was like two Hmm. weeks ago. I'll send you that article. Um, But but those kind of signals, again, this is where the entire medical and scientific establishment should come together together and do the most comprehensive, most laser-focused studies. Instead, we have this kind of societal split, this delusion of, oh, nothing is the vaccine, everything is only the disease. And if we can't come together and at least posit the question and say, we are going to look at anything and everything, you've heard me say before, Everything needs to be like the French legal system, guilty until proven innocent. This is a new product on the market. We need to assume it is that until we can prove it isn't. And there's no way to find out if we don't pose the scientific question and do the scientific studies. So like in every, every, every case of fetal demise, why aren't we looking for spike protein deposited in that? in that infant. Why aren't we doing autopsies? Why did the CDC say to American physicians, don't do autopsies? So do, do you Why have any any like limited? stories about that? Because this is very much your field in pathology. Are there individuals that have done autopsies and have discovered uh, striking findings? Yeah, most of them are out of Germany right now. I have a handful. I've got the reports. I'm waiting on some tissues. I'm trying to do some of those studies personally. Again, statistical power, I'm not going to have enough. I will be able to show a few things. But the the big ones were out of um, uh, Dr. Schermacher in Heidelberg, the other German group as well. And they're quietly starting to come out. There was a very impressive one post-vaccine in South Korea in a young 20-something um, so we're starting to see those reports. Yes, they are induced by the inflammatory and the spike response close shot. We're, we're starting to see them, but there's too few and far between. You know, with something that's killed millions of people around the planet, even if we had done you know, 10 or 20 percent, we would have a million autopsies worth of study to be able to say, okay, now we understand the disease, all the mechanisms, where it's depositing, what it's doing, what the inflammatory patterns are. And, and one has to question the agencies in charge of you know, funding the studies nationally and internationally. Why in the yes. world are we not doing it? And we're scrambling families. Families are desperate for answers. They go to private pathologists. I, I spoke with one mom and, and bless her and lost her 28-year-old daughter right after her shot. And so I know the pathologist who did the autopsy, and I, I will probably secondarily review those tissues. And, and, and the answer is, I don't know. I mean, it may be, may not be, but we're going to look, and then maybe we find, yep. and maybe we don't find. But that's the scientific uh, inquiry process. But if we keep denying science 
or denying the ability to work. Yeah, and you would do this with anything that you mass distribute to the entire world like we've never done before after um, eight months of production or allegedly eight months of production, assuming it started at that start point. But but you know, even if there were no prima facie, you know, right away safety problems. But when you look at theirs, when you look at Pfizer's own, you know, the FOIA documents now where they had, you know, 48,000 adverse event reports to over 1,200 deaths just in three months of the Pfizer shot in their own surveillance whoa like oh so we ought to look at that and then there's no studies long term so again short term it's not a problem like yeah presumably it's okay long term but when you have that many safety signals short term my gosh long term and then when you understand the mechanism of action it's not rocket science it all kind of does work together this is truly unbelievable but even after you've said all this this is not why they're going after you as, as much of a heretic as you are for coming on the show and saying everything you've said, the worst thing you have done is not even raising concerns about the macro epidemiological effects of the shots, the, the obviously the safety risks of the shots, the lack of efficacy of the shots. Your biggest crime is actually treating the virus. Isn't that primarily what the medical board in Idaho is going after you for? Yeah, and thankfully, you know, that's in limbo. That's a political attack. There's never been one patient that has complained. The, the fact of the matter is there are doctors all around the country successfully treating patients with early treatment uh, protocols. And to attack colleagues for saving lives is about the most embarrassing thing a medical profession could do. And, and, and I don't know why they're doing it. Maybe it's because it's making their therapies look bad. You know, when we have the WHO telling the world don't use remdesivir over a year ago now, and meanwhile in the U.S. we're still using remdesivir, then it begs the question, why aren't they looking at those doctors? You know, why aren't they looking at the ones that are under-treating patients? You know, we, we have a pandemic of a virus, but we also have a pandemic of under-early treatment. And we still don't have any outpatient protocol from our own government saying, hey, here's some things you could do. And every time something works, they shoot it down in the media and the press, and then they try to demonize the doctors that are actually scientists and thinkers and and critically, you know, assessing the situation, trying to save lives. They're coming after me with, you know, just specious board complaints, and they say, oh, misinformation, disinformation. They never define it, and they never list this point, this point, mm. this point, this disinformation. You know, and that's, that's propagandistic and Marxist. It, it's like, you're spreading misinformation. I'm like, fantastic. Then tell me where that is. And if I am, let me respond yeah. with the papers. They, they don't have to do anything. Have. They don't, they, they don't have to show any work. Right. They don't have to do anything other than attack you. Yeah, their yeah. stuff has negative evidence behind it. And I then, mean, just then, as we're talking, uh, you know, I see there's a new study out from India on dexamethasone versus methylprednisolone. And, and dexamethasone has been the standard of care, low dose, wrong steroid. Uh, they refuse to look beyond it. And methylpred, you know, and this performed, uh, there were more than twice as many deaths in the dexamethasone group, and they won't move off of it. They won't, I mean, you know, again, forget about ivermectin. Yeah. Yeah, forget about ivermectin. Look at Dr. Chetty and his success. And that's a perfect example. I mean, how many months ago was I calling out to my colleagues, hey guys, this steroid, methylprednisolone, actually turns off certain genes that produce inflammatory cytokines. People die from that cytokine storm. If you want to appropriately treat a patient, and I'm a pathologist, I study pathophysiology, I study pharmacology, I study these mechanisms, and I look at it and I say, guys, here is 
a steroid that turns off the inflammatory cytokine so much better than the one you're using that you're underdosing, common sense would dictate that you use that. And then that India study does confirm that. And in its basic science, I don't know why nobody... I've been sharing a quote in some of my lectures lately from Mark Twain. The man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. And why, why so many doctors and scientists aren't reading all the data and all the information. Yeah. Look, I always no, no, they, they put their fingers in their ear, la, 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 la. But I even met a friend of mine who, who is a doctor in urgent care uh, facility where I live, and he's he's politically like me, so he he's up on ivermectin, he's up on, unfortunately, his hands are tied, but God bless him, he didn't even know half the things I was saying um, that weren't like really in the media like ivermectin. I mentioned phenofibrate to him, and he looked at me like, well, what does that have to do with anything? He had no clue. Even though that was, I mean, there were stories on it, the Jerusalem Post had a big story on it. Like, basic things, they're not up on it, and they don't give it to them it is it is criminal. And by the way, I just want to say before I forget, um, sevencells.com, you go to the pharmacy, you know, we, we talk about you can get ivermectin and nidazoxanide from there. They do have a treatment package there with uh, azithromycin and methylprednisolone. They do give you methylprednisolone. Obviously, there are directions there. Um, you don't want to use a steroid from day one, and they direct you on that. You also don't want to have sugar and carbs while while you're taking that. Um, uh, Dr. Cole, is that a good idea? Just, uh, you know, this, this packet they're, they're, they're selling. I think it's always a good idea to have something ready and on hand. If you haven't had COVID yet, if you're still in that risk category and you know, to have early treatment on hand, I know Dr. Corey's been emphasizing this. I was with him speaking this weekend. He said, look, you know, the, the most important thing you can do is be prepared. And that was because most patients Here's the sad part. These adverse outcomes, you know, people that are vaccinated are getting the virus in many states at equal or higher rates than the unvaccinated and being hospitalized at equal or higher rates. Early treatment is for everyone. And so at the very least, and if, you're not, if you're not allergic, the moment you know you have COVID, start taking aspirin. It's clotting disease. And you have your phenophytate on hand. Have your ivermectin or nitidoxamide on hand. Uh, have your hydroxy. Make sure your vitamin D you're going to drink it those first couple of days with some zinc as well, you know, moderate amount of vitamin C, etc. Have everything ready. Have your have your kit. Have your packet. Like they did in Utah, Pradesh, where they just said, "Hey, we're going to send out 90,000 plus healthcare, you know, affiliate assistants and pass out early treatment to everybody." At the same time, if everybody takes responsibility for their own preparation and, and health. When something comes along, you don't have to scramble and try to find the doctor. And then you don't wait until day three, four, five, six, seven. You don't wait. And people, a lot of people, here's the sad part, is they say, oh, I'm feeling fine. This is a nothing burger virus. I'm doing fine. And it's usually once you hit that inflammatory clotting state, you know, day five through seven, that all of a sudden they end up in the hospital because they didn't do anything to ward off those early effects. So, yes, it's a awesome stuff as always, Dr. Cole. I mean, we've really covered the gambit here. So much more on the table. You're going to keep us updated as this goes on. And again, you guys, you could go to Global COVID Summit. Um, that is uh, the organization, Dr. Cole, Dr. Urso, some of the others have really been trying to raise awareness to the principles um, not to to vaccinate people who don't need it and obviously to promote early treatment. We're going to 
We're coming up on just a month left until the state legislatures reconvene. This is going to be the most important session. We're going to draw a lot upon your work. Um, and, you know, you, you are the teacher of this generation, uh, filling in that gap from the medical community that, that, that they refuse to engage in. So uh, we're going to send some of our questions from our audience to you. Thanks for joining us. And, folks, we are out of time till tomorrow. God bless you all, and thank you for listening.